Over the weekend, things on the political landscape took a turn. So I decided not to release a new episode that I was working on until later this week. That episode will come out on Thursday and instead address these recent events. On Friday evening, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg succumbed to pancreatic cancer. This is difficult. Justice Ginsburg was a giant of the Supreme Court, and she was a woman of historic proportions. You've probably heard the word trailblazer a lot in the news, and that's because it's a good word to use. She had spent her entire career advancing the cause for women's rights and gender equality in many different capacities. As a lawyer, she argued monumental cases before the Supreme Court, served as a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and, of course, as an associate justice on the Supreme Court itself. She spoke truth to power, even in her court-issued opinions, and especially so in the last several years. And she became particularly known in these last several years for her dissents. Now, dissenting opinions on the Supreme Court are important. Though it might seem kind of useless because the majority of the court has already decided on a given case, the value of dissent is exactly that, to speak truth to power. It's so that even in some of the most egregious cases the court can error in its ruling of, there is voice given to dissenters for the historical record. Dissenting opinions are often cited later on if the court changes its position. We can think of really important and famous dissenting opinions such as Justice Benjamin Curtis, who wrote the dissenting opinion in the Dred Scott v. Sanford case, where the majority determined that persons of African descent, either slave or free, were not U.S. citizens. As Justice Ginsburg said in an interview with NPR in 2002, quote, Dissents speak to a future age. It's not simply to say my colleagues are wrong and I would do it this way. But the greatest dissents do become court opinions and gradually over time their views become the dominant view. So that's the dissenter's hope. That they are writing not for today, but for tomorrow. One of my favorite things about Ginsburg was her love for collars that she'd wear with her court robe. She had a collection of collars uh, from around the world. In an interview with Katie Couric, I think it was 2015, she explained that she wore different collars for different events. She had a majority opinion collar and even had a dissent collar. When Couric asked her why that was her dissent collar, she just said, because it looks fitting for dissent. <laughs> now, I would end up doing a few episodes if we were going to focus on how iconic Justice Ginsburg had become and all of her accomplishments and what they meant for this country. But I encourage you to read about her as much as you possibly can, including her memoir called My Own Words. But I want to briefly speak to the political implications here first and then speak to the broader implications. Because the politics here is incredibly important. There are a number of ways things can go from here. But here's a quick list for you of possibilities, reminders, and things to watch for. Number one. Donald Trump will see this as a boon to his bleeding campaign, and politically speaking, he should. Trump has been losing support across virtually every demographic, even demographics that were critical to his win in 2016. If you listen to this show, then you already know about suburban voters, of course, but he's also lost his edge with voters over 65, non-college educated white Americans, 
and even some cracks in his evangelical support. But especially with those voters, a conservative and specifically a pro-life nomination to the court could help him regain some of those losses. Number two, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will do whatever he needs to to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat. Now, you might remember back in 2016, after Justice Scalia passed away, then-President Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland to Scalia's vacancy. Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party, in an unprecedented move, blocked it. McConnell flatly refused to even put Garland's nomination up for a vote. Now, McConnell's reasoning at the time was that if vacancy on the court comes up during an election year, the winner of the election should be the president who nominates a judge to fill that seat. Just days after Scalia died, McConnell said, quote, The American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. McConnell was successful in blocking Obama's nominee and retaining that vacancy for Trump to fill, as he did, with Justice Neil Gorsuch. This time, however, McConnell will not stick to this rule that he made up. McConnell will give us all sorts of backwards and exhausting intellectual acrobatics to try to justify why he won't be consistent with what he did and said in 2016. He recently said something about it being dependent on which party controls the Senate, which party is in the White House, blah, 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 blah. Don't get caught in it. Mitch McConnell does not care about being consistent. The reasoning he used for that move in 2016 was so clearly done in bad faith that we would be foolish to expect any consistency or intellectual integrity here of any kind. Number three, it is in my opinion that a better play for both Trump and the GOP would be to delay this until after the election. The stick that Trump has been using so far, this chaos in Joe Biden's America in Trump's America thing, is not working well. The campaign is in desperate need of a carrot. So using this nominee as a carrot for those court-minded voters is the best move. If they try to run this through before the election, they risk losing critical votes from vulnerable Republicans, and then risk losing those senators' seats. Getting the confirmation through too quickly before the election also risks the whole thing just being lost to the news cycle, so I don't think it's in their best interest to do so. So if you're on the left side of things, you should know that if this is delayed until after the election, don't count it as a victory just yet. I still think that would be better, but it's still not clear to me which advantage is better, and we'll just have to wait till we find out more as the week goes on. Number four, adding to that point of it being better for them to delay, let's be honest. In order to have a chance at winning this election, Donald Trump has to take the focus off of COVID-19. If voters vote with COVID-19 as the largest issue on their minds, Donald Trump is going to lose. He needs something different in the news cycle, and he needs it fast. And this is the perfect thing to take the attention off of COVID, especially with all the hearings that happened before the vote, so on and so forth. And that's my expectation, that we'll have all the hearings on the Senate Judiciary Committee and all that stuff before the election and the vote itself after. Number five, Donald Trump will choose a pro-life judge. I have no doubt. My bet at this point, and all signs point to, the nominee Amy Coney Barrett. Barrett is a devout Catholic. She's extremely anti-choice. In fact, back in 2018, when Kavanaugh's nomination began to derail, it was my thought that, politically speaking, Trump would have been wiser to withdraw Kavanaugh and put up Barrett. Either way, 
And even if it's not Barrett, we can expect a conservative that is much further right and is likely in the realm of Justices Thomas and Alito. The median of the court, which sits with Chief Justice Roberts at this point, will shift dramatically. And this is the Supreme Court. Justices have lifetime appointments. This will change the makeup of the court for generations. Number six, this whole situation puts vulnerable Republicans between a rock and a very serious hard place. Susan Collins, for instance, as we'll talk about more in this coming Thursday's episode, is five points behind her competitor, largely because of the backlash she received in Maine due to her vote for Brett Kavanaugh back in 2018. She's desperate right now to preserve her reputation for being independent. Number seven, Democrats need four Republicans to flip in order to block the nomination. That's a tall order here. The three that would be most likely to, given the right conditions, would be Collins, Mitt Romney of Utah, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Now, Murkowski is not up for re-election this year, but as of this recording at least, both she and Collins have said that they are opposed to a vote before election day. Again, don't count that as a victory. This is also why I think it's in Trump's best interest to delay until after the election so that these votes are still available to him then. But eyes are now on Romney and Cory Gardner of Colorado, who is one of the most vulnerable senators this year. Now, Romney has shown a willingness to stand up to Trump being the only Republican who voted to convict him during the impeachment trial. That being said, Romney is pro-life, and if he likes the nominee, which there's a good chance he will, I would not bet on him to flip. Gardner, additionally, despite the political precarious situation he's in, has stuck through thick and thin to Donald Trump. But all that being said, there are no guarantees here. This is an extremely fluid situation, so we'll just have to see what unfolds. Number eight. Regardless of whether or not Donald Trump wins re-election or whether or not the GOP keeps the Senate, this Supreme Court seat will likely be filled by the end of the year. Democrats just don't have a whole lot of power here. Now, everyone's opinion is different on this, but my view is that both Senate Republicans and Democrats have done things over the last several years that have further politicized the Supreme Court, each one upping each other one time after the next. This road that we've been going down will not last forever. This whole situation is just asking for a constitutional crisis, and in 2020, there are way too many avenues toward that already. We need to de-escalate. So it's my opinion that in order to do that, the GOP needs to keep their word. That's the standard they bound themselves to, and that is the standard we need to hold them to. At very minimum, letting the winner of the election choose the nominee will restore some semblance that the people at the top on both sides are not just playing games with our livelihoods and take their jobs somewhat seriously, especially when it comes to a lifetime appointment. Now, this is politics, and that's apparently a lot to ask for. So we need to use the mechanisms that are available to us in the best way possible. I do want to directly address those who are genuinely afraid right now, especially minority Americans. A conservative majority on the court is heavy, particularly when the threat to some very basic constitutional rights feels like it's just at the gates. But I speak for a lot of people in this country when I say that I am with you and that I am for you. Look, if we have learned anything from Justice Ginsburg's legacy, 
It's that the fundamental rights granted to every one of us derived from self-evident truths are worth fighting for at the midnight hour when it seems the most impossible. Let's go back to Justice Ginsburg's quote I mentioned earlier about dissenting opinions. So that's the dissenter's hope. That they are writing not for today, but for tomorrow. We may take a hit today, but do not give up. You are fighting for so much more than just today. You are fighting for so much more than just yourself. So, dissent. If our Republican senators do not keep their word from 2016, then make sure they don't forget it. Vote. Responsibility to resolve them.